Film Podcast, a show dedicated to celebrating the ongoing mystery and dream that is cinema and tracing film history through the decades via the films that have meant the most to me. My name is John T. Cornford, and I'm a writer, editor, composer, music producer, and a lover of films. This week on the show, we're picking up the story of David Lynch's career in filmmaking, where we left off in the aftermath of the creative disaster that was 1984's Dune. His next film would be the one that would cement his style and aesthetic into the minds of countless moviegoers and filmmakers alike, evoking outrage at the same rate as it was evoking awe and wonderment. It continues to challenge and provoke viewers into the 21st century, probing deep into the recesses of our subconscious, Freudian id and social taboo. It's a film that is just as powerful today as it was nearly 40 years ago, and one that remains shocking to this day. I'm of course talking about David Lynch's Blue Velvet. have to remind you that this film tackles some pretty mature subject matter and so as with every episode of this show if you're not comfortable watching the film then you're probably not going to be comfortable listening to the episode but hey maybe it's time to go outside of your comfort zone so if you haven't seen blue velvet it's one of david lynch's true masterpieces so i strongly encourage you to go and see it before listening to this podcast if you're coming along with me on this journey let's dive in with a quick recap of the story Kyle McLaughlin is Jeffrey Beaumont, a young man who returns to his small hometown when his father falls ill. He finds a severed ear in a field and attempts to unravel the mystery that put it there with the help of Sandy Williams, played by Laura Dern. 
after Sandy connects the ear to club singer Dorothy Valens, played by Isabella Rossellini, Beaumont poses as a pest exterminator to make his way into her apartment. While he's in there, he steals a spare key, while Dorothy is distracted by a man in a yellow jacket, who Jeffrey nicknames the Yellow Man. Jeffrey and Sandy attend Dorothy's nightclub act, where she sings Blue Velvet, and they leave early so that they can infiltrate her apartment again. Sandy is unable to warn Jeffrey of Dorothy's return home, so he's forced to hide in the cupboard while she undresses. She hears Jeffrey in the closet, finds him, and forces him to undress at knife point. She nearly fellates Jeffrey, but when Frank Booth, played by Dennis Hopper, enters the apartment, Dorothy tells Jeffrey to hide in the cupboard again. While in the cupboard, Jeffrey witnesses the evil of Frank Booth. He beats and rapes Dorothy, all while inhaling narcotic gas from a canister, alternating between fits of sobbing and violent rage. After Frank leaves, Jeffrey sneaks out. After coming to the conclusion that Frank has abducted Dorothy's husband, Don, and her son, Donnie, to force her into sex slavery, Jeffrey suspects that Frank cut off Don's ear to intimidate her into submission. While continuing to see Sandy, Jeffrey enters into a sadomasochistic sexual relationship in which Dorothy encourages him to hit her. Jeffrey sees Frank attending Dorothy's show and later observes him selling drugs and meeting with the yellow man. When Frank catches Jeffrey leaving Dorothy's apartment, he abducts them and takes them to the lair of Ben, a criminal associate holding both Don and Donnie hostage. Frank permits Dorothy to see her family and forces Jeffrey to watch Ben perform an impromptu lip sync of Roy Orbison's In Dreams, which moves Frank to tears. Afterwards, he and his gang take Jeffrey and Dorothy on a high-speed joyride to a sawmill yard, where he re-attempts to sexually abuse Dorothy. When Jeffrey intervenes and punches him in the face, an enraged Frank and his gang pull him out of the car. Replaying the tape of In Dreams, Frank smears lipstick on his face and violently kisses Jeffrey, likewise smearing him with red lipstick before savagely beating him unconscious, while Dorothy pleads for Frank to stop. Jeffrey awakes the next morning, bruised and bloodied. Visiting the police station, Jeffrey discovers that Detective Williams' partner, Tom Gordon, is the yellow man who's been murdering Frank's rival drug dealers and stealing confiscated narcotics from the evidence room for Frank to sell. After he and Sandy declare their love for each other at a party, they are pursued by a car which they assume belongs to Frank. As they arrive at Jeffrey's home, Sandy realises that the driver is her ex-boyfriend, Mike. After Mike threatens to beat Jeffrey for stealing his girlfriend, Dorothy appears on Jeffrey's porch, naked, beaten and confused. Mike backs down as Jeffrey and Sandy whisk Dorothy into Sandy's house for medical attention. When Dorothy calls Jeffrey my secret lover, a distraught Sandy slaps him for cheating on her. Jeffrey asks Sandy to tell her father everything, and Detective Williams then leads a police raid on Frank's headquarters, killing his men and crippling his criminal empire. Jeffrey returns alone to Dorothy's apartment, where he discovers her husband dead and the yellow man mortally wounded. As Jeffrey leaves the apartment, a man known as the well-dressed man arrives, sees Jeffrey in the stairs and chases him back inside. 
Jeffrey, realising that this man is actually Frank Booth, uses the yellow man's walkie-talkie to say that he's in the bedroom before hiding in a closet. When Frank arrives, Jeffrey ambushes and kills him with the yellow man's gun, shooting him in the head, moments before Sandy and Detective Williams arrive to help. Jeffrey and Sandy continue their relationship, and Dorothy is reunited with her son. Why are there people like Frank? Why is there so much trouble in this world? represented love and for the longest time there was just this darkness and all of a sudden thousands of robins were set free and they flew down and brought this blinding light of love and it seemed like that love would be the only thing that would make any difference Film classification in Australia is fairly strict, with both MA15 Plus and R18 Plus in place as legally binding classifications. And so with an Australian classification of R18 Plus, I didn't see Blue Velvet until I was 18. Even at that age, I wasn't prepared for what Blue Velvet would assault me with. Raw erotic energy, sexual taboo, deep psychological trauma, characters of inherent contradictions, and a kind of brutality that I hadn't ever really experienced yet in film. Because of this, the first time that I saw Blue Velvet, it traversed the border between compelling and repellent for just about the entirety of its runtime. I didn't know whether I hated it or I loved it. More so than a lot of horror films that I'd been watching and learning the vocabulary of, it really felt like it was a film that had somehow captured something that I wasn't actually supposed to be watching, something I shouldn't be allowed to watch, something truly taboo. There was another element to this film that shocked me almost more than the content itself. For a film by David Lynch, it was almost surprising to me just how straightforward the narrative was. The complexity, of course, lies in the subtext and the mysteries beneath the surface. But for someone who, at the time, had come to appreciate Lynch for films like Eraserhead, Mulholland Drive and the Twin Peaks universe, it was a change that I didn't really see coming.
When we last heard from David Lynch in this look into his career as a filmmaker, he was down and out after the critical and creative disaster that was 1984's Dune. He felt like he had completely sold out in the process of making Dune and had given up his creative integrity, something that he deeply regrets to this day. But despite the overwhelming sense of failure that pervaded the aftermath of Dune, there were a number of important positives that Lynch carried out of that ordeal, one of which was his relationship with legendary film producer Dino De Laurentiis. Ideas for Blue Velvet had been rattling around in Lynch's brain since the 1970s, and as we covered on our Dune episode, he had even pitched the film to Warner Brothers, going as far as to write two drafts of the screenplay for them. In Lynch's own words, those two drafts weren't very good at all, and he suggests that this is largely due to the fact that they contained all of the extreme elements of the film without any of the subtext or substance hung on it yet. Lynch, of course, then went on to direct Dune, leaving Blue Velvet by the wayside momentarily. After the dust had settled around Dune, the rights to these two scripts and Blue Velvet as a property had reverted back to Warner Brothers, something that Lynch was incredibly upset to find out about. Thankfully, De Laurentiis was a loyal businessman and almost immediately picked up the phone and essentially bought back Blue Velvet for Lynch to direct. Lynch had learned his lessons making Dune and so only agreed to make the film if he had total and complete creative freedom, including final cut on the finished product. De Laurentiis agreed, but used this to his own advantage, being an incredibly smart businessman. He gave Lynch complete creative freedom for the price of a halved budget and salary. It was during this time that Lynch discovered the ending of the film, something that wasn't present in the first two or three iterations of the screenplay, as given to him through a dream. He no longer recalls why, but he was sitting in a waiting room at Universal Studios. Who he was waiting to see, and to what end, he doesn't remember. But while he was sitting and waiting, a dream from the night before came to him in two pieces, a police radio and a gun. He asked the secretary for paper and a pen, and he wrote down what would then get moulded into the final confrontation in Dorothy's apartment, in which Geoffrey outsmarts Frank with the radio. Which brings us to something that is becoming more and more important in the life of David Lynch, and therefore more important for us to consider as we look back at his films. Since 1973, Lynch has been an avid advocate of transcendental meditation, as taught by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. This practice has deeply influenced Lynch's creative process, something that he has described many times as similar to the process of going fishing. This here represents the surface of life. Surface. And we see surfaces, you know, surfaces. And about 300 years ago, scientists, they started wondering, what was this, this wood, and what was this metal, and what was, what was it really? So they start looking into matter. So this side is matter, and this side is mind mind and matter and the scientists well they discovered molecules deeper they went and they discovered these atoms 
and like I say, they thought that was the smallest particle for a long time. All these things we learn about in school. They went deeper, and they find inside the atoms these little electrons and neutrons and protons. And they went deeper and deeper and deeper, smaller and smaller particles, smaller and smaller particles. They found four forces. On a deeper level, the four became three. And on a deeper level, the three became two. And then, about 30 years ago, modern science, quantum physics, discovered the unified field. The unity of all the particles and all the forces of matter, of creation. Not only did they discover the unified field, but they found that everything that is a thing emerges from this field of no thing. Unmanifest it is. Unmanifest. It is no hyphen thing, but all things come from it. Anything that is a thing has emerged from this field of unity. It's oneness. The scientists know this exists, but if they wanted to get there, they, you can't get there, it's unmanifest. You can't walk into this field. But any one of those scientists could practice a technique, transcendental meditation, which, remember, true happiness is not out there. You're given a mantra mantra, a very specific sound, vibration, thought. Very specific. It needs to be life-supporting at all deeper levels. And that mantra that you're given, that Maharishi gives, the key that opens the door. The mantra turns the mind within. Turns the awareness within. And you naturally dive. Why is it natural? Because each deeper level of mind and each deeper level of intellect has more happiness. And the deeper levels of mind and deeper levels of intellect correspond to deeper levels of matter. At the borderline of intellect, you transcend. Transcend is the key word. It means to go beyond. An idea comes, and you see it, and you hear it, and you know it. How does it come? It comes like on a TV in your mind. You know, there's a, a line I've, I've always loved of, of Leonard Cohen. He said, if I knew where the good songs came from, I would go there more often. Absolutely. <laughs> People, we, want, I, we don't do anything without an idea. So they're beautiful gifts. And I always say, you 
desiring an idea is like a bait on a hook. Yeah. It can pull them in. And if you catch an idea that you love, that's a beautiful, beautiful day. And you write that idea down so you won't forget it. And that idea that you caught might just be a fragment of the whole, whatever it is you're working on. But now you have even more bait. Thinking about that small fragment, that little fish, will bring in more. And they'll come in and they'll hook on. And more and more come in, and pretty soon you might have a script, or a chair, or a painting, or an idea for a painting. But they come as in small... More often than not, small fragments. I like to think of it as in the other room, the puzzle is all together, but they keep flipping in just one piece at a time. In the other room... Over there. <laughs> in, in a sense, David, there's always another room somewhere. Mm -hmm. That's Let's, a beautiful thing to think about. Let's think about it a bit. No, you think about it. <laughs> I should also say at this point that this podcast is neither an endorsement or a critique of transcendental meditation as a practice. I'm merely looking at it as a critical part of understanding the filmmaking of David Lynch. And if you want to know more about Transcendental Meditation, I encourage you to do so. This is not a podcast about Transcendental Meditation. Unsurprisingly, this has influenced the films that Lynch has made. As an outsider looking in, I can look at a film like Dune and assume that part of the reason that Lynch had such a terrible time on that film was to do with the fact that he was disconnected from this level of deep creativity and freedom of expression as encouraged by Transcendental Meditation. As we will explore in more detail, Blue Velvet feels like a return to more personal storytelling for Lynch and deals in the archetypal images and themes that Lynch would go on to spend the rest of his career exploring, all of which, he would say, were illuminated by his dedication to the practice of Transcendental Meditation. In a lot of ways, Blue Velvet appears to be a fresh start for Lynch. He was introduced to composer Angelo Badalamenti during the course of making the film, and it liberated his fascination for sex as the site of domestic trauma, fear, power, and, on occasion, euphoria, something that was absent from his filmmaking after Eraserhead. Given that this thematic content was conspicuously absent from The Elephant Man and Dune, and that from Blue Velvet onwards his filmmaking is largely defined by this thematic material, one could almost look at that brief phase of mainstream success as a period of arrested sexual development for Lynch and his cinema. The sexual extremities of Blue Velvet and the power with which they were delivered to an audience inevitably resulted in a degree of public outrage and moral confusion, perhaps exacerbated by the fact that the film was undoubtedly an extraordinary piece of cinema, and one that functioned in a completely different universe from those of the cheap exploiter or the slick, cynical, high-concept movie. Another key piece of context for understanding Lynch and his creative intentions behind Blue Velvet comes in the form of a troubling memory from his childhood. One night, I kind of had the feeling it was in the fall, and it was pretty late. Usually, my father would go outside 
and yell. John! David! And that would bring us home. But this night, it must have been, I don't know, close to that time. It seemed to be pretty late. I don't know what we were doing, but from across Shoshone Avenue, out of the darkness comes this like kind of like a strangest dream because I'd never seen an adult woman naked and she had beautiful pale white skin and she was completely naked and I think her mouth was bloodied and she kind of came strangely walking strangely across Shoshone and came into Park Circle Drive. And it seemed like she was sort of like a giant. And she came closer and closer and my brother started to cry. Something was bad wrong with her. And I don't know what happened, but I think she sat down on a curb crying. But it was very mysterious. Like we were seeing something otherworldly. And I wanted to do something for her, but I was little. I didn't know what to do. And I don't remember any more than that. While the duality of the beautiful and the profane was certainly present in Eraserhead, it's here in Blue Velvet that we see this central idea in Lynch's cinema fully crystallise for the first time. This mysterious memory from Lynch's childhood serves as a great example of this, the beauty of childhood innocence and the female form colliding with a deeply upsetting feeling that something is very, very wrong. The off-sighted opening sequence of Blue Velvet has become somewhat of a cliched example of this. The glossy veneer of 1950s Americana, all white picket fences, firemen waving as they drive past, peeled away to reveal the dark underbelly of writhing bugs, dirt and filth. But despite how on-the-nose and overblown this example has become, this core idea becomes fully realised in Blue Velvet and remains as one of his core concerns throughout the rest of his career, all the way through to the revolutionary and transcendental Twin Peaks The Return in 2017. After the final sequence of the film came to him in that dream in a waiting room at Universal, the final shooting script came together dated July 24th, 1985. He finally had a script that he was happy with, but as with the failed Ronnie Rocket, Blue Velvet proved to be a difficult film to get off the ground. With Lynch doubling down on his creative authority and refusal to share Final Cut with producers, saying yes to financing Blue Velvet meant saying yes to Lynch's voice in its totality without any compromise, something that was cause for producers to think twice before signing on. You either entered his vision and his orbit or you didn't. Because of this, it's pretty easy to assume that Blue Velvet may not have ever even been made if it weren't for Dino De Laurentiis, not just in a budgeting sense, but also in bringing on producer Fred Caruso. 
Caruso had worked on De Laurentiis' first picture in the United States, the Valachi Papers, in 1972, and De Laurentiis came to Caruso, asking him to meet with David Lynch. He told him that he wanted to make Blue Velvet with David Lynch, but was unsure that it would get made with a budget of $10 million, as was being predicted. So Caruso met with Lynch, read the screenplay, after which he told De Laurentiis that he didn't understand the script, but could easily bring the budget down to $4 million. De Laurentiis gave him the job. For both Lynch and De Laurentiis, this was a perfect compromise. De Laurentiis didn't have to spend as much money on what was a creative risk, and Lynch had the creative freedom that he was demanding. While Carl McLaughlin was definitely aware of the difficulties that Lynch had during his time making Dune, he was also aware of the way in which Lynch had become a sort of mentor figure for him in learning how to interact with the cameras on the set of a major film, discovering his voice. McLaughlin had also gotten to know Lynch as a friend and companion throughout the making of Dune, and he saw a lot of Lynch in the character of Geoffrey Beaumont when he first read the draft of Blue Velvet that was given to him on the set of Dune. Geoffrey is our guide through the darkness and light of Blue Velvet, and McLaughlin has spoken in the past about Lynch's ability to take issues from his own life and incorporate them into his art. Lynch isn't coy about the degree of his presence in some of his characters, Geoffrey being no exception, saying, I do see a lot of myself in Geoffrey, and I identified with Henry in Eraserhead too. Both of these characters are confused about the world. Many of the things I see in the world seem very beautiful, but it's still hard for me to figure out how things can be the way they are, and I guess that's one of the reasons why my movies tend to be open to different interpretations. The sort of boyish enthusiasm and optimism that made McLaughlin stick out as a little too Luke Skywalker-esque in Dune serves the film's depiction of light and darkness colliding, with Jeffrey being the bridge between these two worlds. As far as Lynch was concerned, when he saw McLaughlin, he saw Jeffrey. Intelligent, handsome, good with the girls, and brimming with curiosity. He could play naive and innocent as well as obsessive. Jeffrey acts as a connection between two different worlds. He can look into Sandy's world, he can look into Dorothy's world, and he can get into Frank's world. Casting the role of Dorothy proved to be more difficult. A lot of actresses turn the role down for one reason or another, including Helen Mirren, who, despite not wanting to be involved in the film, did provide Lynch with valuable advice on the screenplay, including the suggestion that Dorothy should have a child. Rossellini didn't cross Lynch's radar until late in the game, when he happened to meet her in a restaurant in New York City. He was with Raffaella De Laurentiis' ex-husband, and they saw members of Dino De Laurentiis' office sitting in the restaurant, so they went over to say hello. He saw Rossellini sitting there eating and said to her, Do you know, you look like you could be Ingrid Bergman's daughter, to which someone told him, of course, that she was Ingrid Bergman's daughter. Very soon after, he discovered that Rossellini was also a budding actor, not just a model, and she was offered the role of Dorothy. For me, though, the success of this film largely hinges around the central performance of Dennis Hopper as the psychopathic Frank Booth. Lynch was a fan of Hopper's already, and particularly loved him in Giant, Rebel Without a Cause, and The American Friend, but was told not to hire him. 
During that time, Hopper had been struggling with substance abuse and was told that he was always going to be under the influence and that he was never going to be able to get what he needed from him on set. Somewhere down the line, Hopper's agent called Lynch and told him that he was sober and had just finished working on a picture and that the director of that picture had loved working with him and would be happy to talk to Lynch about it. Then Hopper himself called Lynch and said that he had to play Frank Booth because he was Frank Booth. When Hopper shot his first scene as Frank with Dorothy, Lynch was laughing uncontrollably between takes because he was so happy. The intensity, the obsession and the drivenness of Frank, it was all there the way that Lynch had imagined it and portrayed it on the page. Music has been a hugely important part of all of Lynch's films, but the music of Blue Velvet was a particularly notable fresh start for Lynch in the wake of Dune. In particular, its use of two very specific songs, Blue Velvet and In Dreams. The way that In Dreams affects the overall mood and feeling of the film is of particular importance. As soon as Lynch heard that version of the song that we hear in the film, it explained to him what the film was about. He immediately called Dennis Hopper and told him about a scene that he had in mind where we'd have to memorise the song. Hopper and Dean Stockwell were old friends, and so Stockwell got together with Hopper to help him work out the song and memorise the lyrics. They arrived at the day of shooting the scene in Ben's apartment, and Stockwell told Lynch that he was going to stand just off camera to help Hopper if needed. The music started playing, and both Dennis Hopper and Dean Stockwell started to sing the song. All of a sudden, in character, Hopper stopped singing and watched Stockwell, who continued singing. Lynch saw this happen and knew that the scene had to be changed. Once it was decided that Stockwell would be the one singing in dreams, another strange thing happened. They had planned to use a small candle-style table lamp as the microphone, and Stockwell knew that the microphone was going to be a lamp of some sort, so when he walked onto the set of Ben's apartment, he picked up something that he assumed was the prop light, but was actually just a work light that was hanging from a nail in the wall. He turned it on and flipped the long cord like a microphone cord, and they shot the scene. Lynch felt like that particular light was even more perfect than the one that the props team had prepared for the scene, but also has no recollection of what that light was there for, or who had put it there in the first place. In typical Lynch fashion, he remembers the exact moment that his passion for music started. It was twilight in Boise, Idaho during the summer, and his friend, Willard Burns, came running towards him from three houses down, shouting, You missed it! Lynch said, What? And Burns replied, Elvis, on Ed Sullivan. This lit a fire in Lynch's head, the beginning of his obsession with rock and roll, and something that will continue to show up again and again as we continue along this thread. It's also during the course of making Blue Velvet that Lynch is introduced to musician and composer Angelo Badalamenti, who passed away towards the end of last year at the age of 85. Lynch hadn't intended to have Badalamenti compose the score for Blue Velvet, and the only reason that he came on board in the first place was to do with Isabella Rossellini having to learn the song Blue Velvet. Rossellini was originally going to sing the song with a local club band and had hired a teacher in Wilmington who played the piano. 
But as it transpired, Rosalini and her teacher were working off two different versions of the song, and so by the time they made it to the studio, it just wasn't coming together the way that Lynch wanted it to. Producer Fred Caruso turned to Lynch and suggested that he call his friend Angelo, to which Lynch insisted that they continue with the original plan and grind it out until they could make it work. But eventually, it became clear to Lynch that it wasn't going to work, and he begrudgingly said yes to Badalamenti flying over to help. Lynch didn't even meet Badalamenti initially. Rossellini was staying at a hotel that had a lobby with a piano in it, and so at 10 o'clock in the morning, Badalamenti met with Rossellini in the lobby of the hotel, and they worked on the song. At noon that day, Lynch was shooting in the Beaumont backyard, and Badalamenti came to set. He gave Lynch a tape and told him that he had recorded it with Rossellini that morning. Lynch put the headphones on, and one of the most fruitful creative partnerships in cinema history was born. Sound designer Alan Splett, whose work on Eraserhead had such a lasting impact, not just on that film, but the industry in general, returned to do the design work on Blue Velvet. One day, as the two of them were working away in a studio in Berkeley, he suddenly stopped, turned to Lynch, and said, David, I can't work on this film anymore. I can't stand this film. I can't stand Frank Booth, and I can't do it. It's making me sick. And that was that. Alan Splett left the project halfway through, leaving Lynch and the rest of Splett's team to finish the sound for the picture. In stark contrast to his experience on Dune, Lynch was left alone by Dino De Laurentiis throughout the shoot of Blue Velvet with one notable exception. De Laurentiis came to set once to see the dailies after the first day of shooting. As it happened, one of the lenses that they had used was broken, and as they were looking at the footage for the first time, they discovered that it was all out of focus and dark, meaning that they had to reshoot the entirety of the first day's footage. Upon seeing this, De Laurentiis exploded, demanding an explanation. Lynch calmly explained that it was simply down to the broken lens, which seemed to satisfy De Laurentiis. He left and didn't bother the shoot again. Are you lying to me? You sure? Hey! Hello, baby. Who is this fuck? A friend. He's from the neighborhood. We were just talking. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. Yeah. Your neighbor. But what's your name, neighbor? Jeffrey. He's a good kid, Frank. Shut the fuck up. Hey, you want to go for a ride? No, thanks. No, thanks. What, what, What does that mean? don't want to go. Go where? For a ride. A ride. Now that's a good idea. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Get your fucking robe. Raymond, come on. We're going to go for a joyride. Joyride.
right, where do you want to go? <laughs> oh, I know. And we got to go to Ben's, right? Oh, right. We've got to see Ben. <laughs> oh, yeah, we got to, got to, got to, got to. We may all be killed. <laughs> <laughs> He's a pussy, Frank. He's a pussy. Yeah, but he's our pussy. Right, kids? Pussy heaven. Mm. You ever been to pussy heaven? No. What'd he say? No, no. I hadn't been to pussy heaven. Police call. Police call. This is it. Raymond? Thank you, Raymond. beer for Ben, too. What kind of beer do you like? Heineken. Heineken? Fuck that shit! Paps Blue Ribbon! As already mentioned, Blue Velvet sees Lynch taking on the explicitly sexual in a way that he had not previously at this point in his career. Lynch talks about this shift in Chris Rodley's compiled interview, Lynch on Lynch. He says, sex is such a fascinating thing. It's like jazz. You can listen to one pop song just so many times, whereas jazz has so many variations. Sex should be like that. It can be the same tune, but there are many variations on it. And then, when you start getting out there, it can be shocking to learn that something like that could be sexual. But it's a real fact of life, just the same. There's no real explaining it in Blue Velvet, because it's just such an abstract thing in person. Certain aspects of sex are troubling, the way it's used for power, for instance, or the way it takes the form of perversions that exploit other people. Those things are not good, but I think a lot of people find them a real kick, and it's a fairly common sort of behaviour. Chris Rudley also asks Lynch in the book about the Freudian images and themes that show up in Blue Velvet, to which he responds, Let's put it this way, my reasoning mind didn't ever stop and say what the hell am I doing? That's why I keep saying that making films is a subconscious thing. Words get in the way. Rational thinking gets in the way. It can really stop you cold. But when it comes out in a pure sort of stream from some other place, film has a great way of giving shape to the subconscious. It's such a great language for that. So we can surmise from that response that any Freudian imagery and ideas present in Blue Velvet are perhaps not intentional, but were certainly subconscious additions. Despite this, there is a lot of fascinating analysis that one can make when looking at Blue Velvet through a Freudian lens. So let's get super analytical with some help from an article by Cinema Wizard Boy that will be linked in the show notes of the episode. Blue Velvet is many things, and among those many things, it's also a coming-of-age tale, the tale of Jeffrey leaving behind his childhood and becoming a man. In his 1920 essay, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Sigmund Freud theorised that three parts make up the structure of our psyche, the id, the ego, and the superego. The id is the disorganised part of the personality structure that contains a human's basic instinctual drives. The id is the source of our needs, wants, desires, and impulses. 
The id of Jeffrey is clearly demonstrated at the beginning of the film, as the id is the only part of our personality that's present from birth, and Jeffrey has yet to embark on his path to his psychosexual awakening, his coming of age, as it were. Jeffrey's wants and desires are unraveled when he discovers the severed ear in the field. What Lynch says about the ear is interesting and provides perhaps some insight. He says about the ear, I don't know why it had to be an ear, except it needed to be an opening of a part of the body, a hole into something else. The ear sits on the head and goes right into the mind, so it felt perfect. So on a literal level, the ear is a hole leading to the mind, but on a metaphorical level, the ear is a hole leading to another realm of existence. Perhaps the realm of the person that the ear belongs to. Jeffrey's id continues to drive his behaviour when his curiosity motivates him to unveil the circumstances that led to his discovery of the ear. This behaviour is aided by Jeffrey's ego. The ego part of the psyche acts to please the id's drive in realistic ways. This is best depicted during the scenes where Jeffrey explains to Sandy his rational plans to break into the apartment of Dorothy Valens. The most captivating conflicts of the film are the result of the superego working in contradiction to the id. The superego reflects the internalization of the cultural rules that are usually taught by our parents. Arthur S. Reber in the Penguin Dictionary of Psychology says that the superego can be thought of as a type of conscience that punishes misbehavior with the feelings of guilt. During Jeffrey's sexual encounter with Dorothy, when she begs him to hit her, he initially backs away as he was likely taught that violence is an immoral act. After continued pestering, his id eventually wins over and he resorts to striking her repeatedly. Jeffrey's relationship with Dorothy depends on his id's ability to overcome his superego. In contrast, Jeffrey's relationship with Sandy depends on his ego's ability to repress his desires and impulses. When Sandy finds out that Jeffrey can't do this, she is visibly disgusted. Interfacing with this idea that Blue Velvet is a coming-of-age tale, Jeffrey's journey and his interactions with the other characters mirror Freud's theory of sexual development. So let's have a look at Jeffrey's situation. His father, debilitated by a stroke in the opening scene, lies in a hospital bed, unable to speak or have any authority in Jeffrey's life. His mother, on the other hand, doesn't seem to take much interest at all in her son's affairs. The relationship between him and his parents clearly leaves a void to be filled. This void is eventually filled by Dorothy, his new mother, and Frank Booth, his new father. In the phallic stage of psychosexual development, children eventually become aware of their bodies and the bodies of their parents. The scene in which Dorothy instructs Jeffrey to undress is particularly noteworthy because once she sexually embraces him, she repeatedly tells him not to look at her, so Jeffrey's superego is blocked from refusing her advances. This makes sense because during the phallic stage, the superego is not fully developed yet. Also in the phallic stage comes the Oedipus complex, in which one of the parents becomes the sexual interest of the child. Jealousy comes into play for the child, because it's the father who is the one that regularly has intercourse with the mother, and as a result, the boy's id wants to kill his father and have sex with his mother. Both of these events, of course, occur in Blue Velvet. 
Another way to interpret Frank Booth is that he represents the earliest stage of development, the oral stage, when the mouth is the primary erogenous zone. All of his pleasure experiences are mouth-related, whether it's his interest in inhaling narcotic gas or shoving the scrap of blue velvet in his mouth. After the wild joyride scene, Frank is seen applying lipstick and kissing Jeffrey, again indicating Jeffrey in the phallic stage, as this is when the child learns the differences between males and females and begins to develop a sexual preference. The homoeroticism between Frank and Ben is also not coincidental, one must then presume. The most concrete evidence for Frank being a Freudian character is obviously his unique choice of words during his sexual escapades. The transitioning into adulthood explanation intertwines with this view of Frank because it's obvious that Jeffrey must kill Frank, his oral stage nemesis, in order to complete his transformation into an adult male. This is, of course, a reading of the film that enforces a lens that Lynch has actively disregarded as anything that had any conscious bearing on the creation of the film, so it's important to remember that such a reading of Blue Velvet is purely theoretical and not to be confused with Lynch's original intention. We can also, however, look at Chris Rodley's interview again to gain some insight into the things that were on the brain as the script was being put together. On the one hand, Blue Velvet is certainly a reflection of the voyeurism inherent in the very act of watching film. Lynch says, Film is really voyeurism. You sit there in the safety of the theatre, and seeing is such a powerful thing. And we want to see secret things. We really want to see them. New things. It drives you nuts. And the more new and secret they are, the more we really want to see them. The film is also very clearly a depiction of the sort of dualism and deep hypocrisy at the heart of the sort of wide-eyed Americana that was so much a part of Lynch's childhood growing up in the 1950s. Here's Lynch again. He says, That is the way that America is to me. There's a very innocent, naive quality to life. And there's a horror and a sickness as well. It's everything. Blue Velvet is a very American movie. The look of it was inspired by my childhood in Washington. I get frustrated when I hear critics and analysts simply describing the iconic opening scene of the film as their analysis of the film, as if pointing out that there is good and evil both present in modern Americana is anything other than an exercise in pointing out the bleeding obvious. I think Lynch has much more in mind in depicting these two worlds in stark contrast, and we will certainly explore this theme much more when we dive into the mystery and lore of the Twin Peaks universe. It is imperative that Jeffrey encounters this dark underbelly, because it's through this encounter that he develops into an adult. By the end of the film, he's better able to appreciate the goodness and wholesomeness of life, represented by the person of Sandy, because of his newfound understanding of just how dark life can get. It's through understanding the place and function of evil and darkness that one can achieve balance and maturity in the place of naivety and ignorance. At a certain point, Dino De Laurentiis wanted to see the film. Much to Lynch's surprise, he loved it. De Laurentiis was a man who said whatever he wanted to whoever was there to hear it, and so while he was in the screening room set up for him to preview an early cut of the picture, Lynch was just waiting for him to tear it to shreds. And so it was to Lynch's great surprise that De Laurentiis loved the film. 
He did, of course, have plenty to say about it, mostly to do with cutting the movie to a quicker pace. But with De Laurentiis' affirmation and assurance of final cut, he was confident in the film as it was. De Laurentiis then also had foreign salespeople showing the film to distribution people over in Europe, from which the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. De Laurentiis' response to this was to set up a test screening in the US one night in a theatre in the Valley that was showing Top Gun sneaking in Blue Velvet. Lynch's agent at the time, still Rick Nasita, and some other agents attended this screening and left as soon as the film ended. They called Lynch from the car on the way home, telling him that they thought it went great and that the mood in the room was really positive. But Laura Dern's mother, Diane Ladd, and some of her friends were also at the screening, and they were much quieter about their experience at the test screening. Deciding to go off the reaction of his agent, Lynch went to bed that night a happy man. He woke early the next morning and called De Laurentiis, and got through to his secretary, whose voice was all solemn, and she put him through to head of distribution at the time, who also gave off a solemn vibe. Lynch asked what the deal is, saying that the screening went well, to which the reply was, it did not go well, it was a disaster. Confused, Lynch hung up and made his way into De Laurentiis' office. De Laurentiis showed Lynch the question cards that were handed out to the audience members to fill out after seeing the film. They said things like David Lynch should be shot, and that the best part of the film was the dog, or the end when it was over. They were the worst question cards from a preview screening that De Laurentiis had ever seen. If it weren't for De Laurentiis then, Blue Velvet could very well have been shelved right then and there. But instead, he said to Lynch, David, we took a chance and we see now that it's not a film for everybody. So we learn and we go on. Instead of shelving the film, as many other producers would have done in that sort of situation, they instead screened it to critics, who mostly had nice things to say about the film. About six months later, the same head of distribution who had spoken to Lynch over the phone that morning called Lynch and said, Remember that theatre where we had our previews? Blue Velvet is playing there, and there are lines around the block. Here's Lynch again on some of the more confronting elements of the film. It's not a movie for everyone. Some people really dug it. Others thought it was disgusting and sick. And, of course, it is, but it has two sides. You have to have the contrasts. Films should have power, the power of good and the power of darkness, so you can get some thrills and shake things up a bit. If you back off from that stuff, you're shooting right down into lukewarm junk. Anytime there's a little bit of power, somebody might think that it's sick or disgusting. A lot of the time, when you go out to an extreme, you can make a fool of yourself or a fool of the film. You just have to believe things so much that you can make them honest. I'm not trying to manipulate an audience. I'm just trying to get in there and let the material talk. To work inside a dream. If it's real and if you believe it, you can say almost anything. In regards to this subject, Isabella Rossellini points to the aspects of Lynch that are rarely discussed in the heat of such debates. She says, A lot of people thought it was sick, but for me, it always represented the research in David of the good and the bad. He's quite a religious person, quite spiritual, and any person who is religious is always trying to define these things, which are always so elusive. I think that's the core of his filmmaking. 
In regards to her portrayal of Dorothy, she also, unsurprisingly, has a lot to say on the matter. She says, In my mind, she was a battered woman, someone who perhaps had Stockholm Syndrome. But you can't play that literally. David's films are more of a sensation than a story. They're not anthropological or psychological researches into character. They're surreal impressions. Things are very transcendental. Blue Velvet has to do with a profound moral dilemma. That's why the story is surreal. Dorothy masks herself because she's afraid of what she looks like. She's shy and she hates herself. The wigs and the makeup and everything was because she wanted to look like a doll, perfect to hide her madness. The more she becomes a victim not to elicit sexuality, the more she does. I played her that way. Everything she did turned out to be something that she didn't mean. There is also a sense, I suspect, that a lot of the outrage aimed at the film's portrayal of women confused Rossellini's portrayal of Dorothy with Lynch's portrayal of all women. Dorothy is a specific character designed especially to interface with Geoffrey and Frank in ways that are compelling and, hopefully, illuminating. Not as some sort of mission statement about all women. This, of course, doesn't remove the power and disturbing force of the performance, but it does perhaps explain some of the outrage. Unsurprisingly, the overall reception that Blue Velvet received was mixed. The critics who were positive about it were raving about it, but the critics who were less positive about it were incredibly harsh. Most notably, Roger Ebert eviscerated the film in a now famous review. Blue Velvet is a movie that really challenges you to think about your reactions to it. And my reaction is, I think this movie is cruelly unfair to its actors. It was directed by David Lynch, the same man who made Eraserhead and Dune. And he's a talented director. You can see that here in scenes that have a lot of power. But he asked Isabella Rossellini in this movie to be undressed and humiliated on the screen, as few actresses ever have been, certainly in non-porno roles. And then he tries to take the edge off her shocking scenes by turning the whole thing into some kind of a joke. Well, either this material is funny, in which case you don't take advantage of your stars, or it isn't funny, in which case it shouldn't have so much campy and adolescent dialogue along with the really powerful sexual scenes. Sure, the movie's well made, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. Well, I liked it, and I thought about it a lot. And I think mm -hmm. you may be on the wrong tack in trying to feel sorry for Isabella Rossellini, because after all, she consented to do what she did on the screen, number one. Number two, I'm sure she's walking around wherever she lives, New York City or whatever, and survived the whole experience, just like Janet Lee survived the shower scene in Psycho. So I don't think that that's pertinent. I think what's exciting about the film, and it is challenging, is it starts out with flowers and sunlight, and it's a happy little town, and then we dig deeper and we find out it's a nasty town, or at least a couple of people are nasty. And I sat there, and this did for me, and I use the Psycho example again, this did for me what Psycho did, as a lot younger, which is eyes open and, oh my God, we're really getting in over our heads. And that's an experience which is challenging, shocking, mm -hmm. but mesmerizing, and I like the picture. Well, first of all, I don't think I'm on the wrong tack with Isabella Rossellini. In the first place, the movie was shot in two halves, so she had no idea making her part of the movie that all of the stuff outdoors and in the daylight was going to be smarmy and campy and funny with all kinds of in-jokes. And secondly, it seems to me that we can't divorce our reactions. It's not how Ro Isabella Rossellini reacts mm -hmm. to the fact that she's standing there nude and humiliated on the lawn of the police captain's house with lots of people watching. It's how I react. Mm -hmm. And that's painful to me to see a woman treated like that. And mm -hmm. I want to know that if I'm feeling that pain, it's for a reason that the movie has other than simply to cause pain to her. Well, I think that the reason is that the film is a thriller and a shocker. I mean, mm -hmm. there are people that get hurt 
badly in real life, That's and right. I think that this is a legitimate one. This is not a simple mad slash. Okay, then movie. why is it a comedy? Because he wants to set you up. He's a director, mm -hmm. and he wants to play you like all the directors, the great directors want to do. He wants to play you like a piano, which is have you smile and then swing you right into the, some depression. Yeah, well, the next I think, time he, I think he got wants to play me like a piano, he'd better get some music that's worth listening to. I think this is a good song. British film critic Mark Kermode tells the story of his first time seeing Blue Velvet and not quite being prepared for its ferocity and power. Now, I imagine that many of you have seen Blue Velvet. It's become one of the sort of classic modern texts. But Blue Velvet has a very particular place in my heart because it's a very important film for me as a new film critic. I saw the film when it first came out and I reviewed it for City Life magazine. And the first time I saw it, and I've said this before, I hated it. It really got under my skin, it really upset me, it really distressed me, and I really, really didn't like it. And I wrote a snarky and snidey dismissive review. Sometime later, I went back to see the film again, having been told by some friends that, you know, you misjudged it, it it's just it got under your skin. And I saw it again, and the second time I saw it, it was like watching a different movie. I mean, it was the same movie, it still got under my skin, it still worried me, it still alarmed me, but somehow, I thought it was a brilliant experience, as opposed to just a shocking and appalling experience. Now, I learned a really important lesson from Blue Velvet, and it was this. There are films that you can love, and there are films that you can hate. But the really brilliant films are often the films that you can love and hate at exactly the same time. Looking at Blue Velvet again now, and I have seen it many times in the interim years, I still remember what it was about it that freaked me out so much the first time. It's not just that the dialogue is incredibly strange and scabrous and dreamy and Dennis Hopper's performance as Frank is one of the most frightening things I've ever seen on screen. It's the fact that the film has an atmosphere which is genuinely eerie, genuinely uncanny, genuinely out of this world. You know, David Lynch talks all the time about we live inside a dream. It's one of the central themes of Twin Peaks, particularly Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. The musical sequence in Blue Velvet, in which we see someone lip-syncing to In Dreams by Roy Orbison, while Dennis Hopper looks on in stunned amazement and horror and anger and lust, is a real key sequence. Because in a way, it defines what it is that Blue Velvet is trying to say about the fact that we live inside a dream. As a film critic, it taught me that when a film really gets under your skin and really provokes a visceral reaction, you have to be very careful about assessing it. When I first saw Blue Velvet, I was young and foolish. And now, the idea of walking out of that film seems completely stupid. But I still know why it happened. And oddly enough, I still admire the film for the fact that it made it happen. Actually, I didn't walk out of Blue Velvet because it was a bad film. I walked out of Blue Velvet because it was a really good film. The point was, at the time, I wasn't good enough for it. Janet Maslin of the New York Times sung Blue Velvet's praises, saying, Mr. Hopper and Miss Rossellini are so far outside the bounds of ordinary acting here that their performances are best understood in terms of sheer lack of inhibition. Both give themselves entirely over to the material, which seems to be exactly what is called for. She called the film an instant cult classic, concluding that Blue Velvet is as fascinating as it is freakish, 
and that it confirms Lynch's stature as an innovator, a superb technician, and someone best not encountered in a dark alley. Woody Allen and Martin Scorsese both named the film as their favourite of the year, and despite Roger Ebert's scathing critique, Gene Siskel named it amongst his favourites of the year. Blue Velvet would also garner Lynch a second nomination for Best Director at the 59th Academy Awards. The film made back enough money to wash its face, which was more than enough to absolve Lynch of the disaster that was Dune. But outside of how well the film performed critically or commercially, Blue Velvet was a return to personal and vital filmmaking for Lynch that revitalised him, serving almost as a rebirth for his career. It played a crucial role in Lynch's evolution as an artist, and it helped him to clarify precisely who he was as an artist. It marks his triumphant return to exploring the rotten facade of Americana, the soaring trees of the Pacific Northwest, suburban Midwestern neighbourhoods murmuring with the sounds of insects on summer nights, Los Angeles, where the movie business eats the soul, and Philadelphia, the terrifying crucible where his aesthetic sensibility was forged during the 1960s. He has been faithful to all of these things since he returned from those difficult months in Mexico shooting Dune. Before we leave this story for now, let's take a quick look at some of the other films that came out in 1986. It's a great year for horror, with David Cronenberg's The Fly, James Cameron's Aliens, Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, and the camp classic Chopping Mall, all released in 1986. Some other favourites of mine from this year are Michael Mann's Manhunter, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, and Andrei Tarkovsky's haunting final film, The Sacrifice. At the Academy Awards, Platoon wins Best Picture and Best Director for Oliver Stone. Paul Newman wins Best Actor for The Colour of Money, and Marley Matlin wins Best Actress for Children of a Lesser God. Best Original Screenplay goes to Woody Allen for Hannah and Her Sisters, and Best Adapted Screenplay goes to Ruth Prora Jabvala for A Room with a View. The five most successful films at the worldwide box office are Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, The Karate Kid Part II, Platoon, Crocodile Dundee, and Top Gun. Thanks for listening. As always, please make sure to give this podcast a friendly review wherever you're catching it and to share it with a friend. The best way to support this show and get it in front of more sets of eyes is simply by leaving a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch and let me know your thoughts on Blue Velvet or any other film that we've covered on this show, you can either find us on socials or you can email us at bluerose.filmreview at gmail.com. If you don't already follow the show on Instagram, that's a great place to connect with me and a whole bunch of other people that love films. 
My first short story collection, called Where Lies the Strangling Fruit, is available to buy on paperback or Kindle on Amazon. I'll have the link for that down below. Thanks to producer Ritterman for our theme music, and thanks to Acast for hosting this podcast. Major sources for this episode were Room to Dream by Christine McKenna and David Lynch, and of course, Lynch on Lynch, edited by Chris Rodley. That's all for now. I'll see you next week for another episode of the Blue Rose Film Podcast.